In this week's episode, Gina Cox, who is an author and a speaker, author of the book Leading Inclusion, she and I are going to chat about the first black female on a Ben and Jerry's pint, Doctors Without Borders, Taking Responsibility for White Saviorism, and more. Hey there, my name is Bernadette Smith. Welcome to Five Things in 15 Minutes, my weekly show where I bring good vibes to DEI. That is good vibes to diversity, equity, and inclusion with a little dash of corporate social responsibility. What I've found is that there are lots of news stories about what's going wrong in the world and lots of negative data, but there are also a lot of things going right. That's what I like to focus on. I search for DEI stories that we can be inspired by and learn from. My hope is to inspire you to experiment with some of these inclusive actions and policies within your own organization to help you build a more inclusive world. Let's get started. Gina, would you mind introducing yourself? Oh, I would be delighted. First of all, you know, it's so nice to be on a show with you, Bernadette. You know, I, we've had the opportunity to have our paths cross along the way, but it's nice to be here today. Yeah, so I'm an organizational psychologist, and I like to say the only thing I really understand well in the world is how humans interact with one another at work. And I use that, you know, experience and have used it for decades to help leaders build um, healthy, psychologically healthy organizations and cultures. That's really the focus of my work is leaders leadership effectiveness. And then more recently, I wrote this book, Leading Inclusion, which really focuses specifically on how leaders should drive or guide inclusion from the top of their organizations or from whatever leadership perch they happen to be on. So I am all about just helping organizations be inclusive and healthy places for all of us. Awesome. Well, it is really important work. So can you give any, maybe like two or three tips for any leaders who are watching about what they can do from their perch to lead with inclusion? Yeah, you know, I, th I would suppose, you know, the most important thing is to really think about your organization and what it is that you're solving for in your organization. I really encourage leaders to avoid sort of the, you know, solution of the moment, the, the hot tip, the best practice, and really focus on what is your organization, what are your challenges, what goes well in your organization, and then what outcomes might you want to have in the next 12 months. And let that guide what you should spend your time on, because it might not be, uh, for example, implicit bias training or the diversity hiring, which is something that those are the two solutions that everyone will offer you first, but those might not be the ones for you. Another thing I would say is that it really does make a difference if you, as the leader, of regardless of the size of your group, that you have a point of view, a vision, uh, you know, a perspective, a why as to this work. And frankly, you, you can't just have the why. You have to be involved in leading this work. And of course, I don't mean you do it. You've got a team of people that will help you, but you've got to be able to to articulate for that team what matters. If not, they're going to go off and do a variety of ad hoc things, and you still might not get the outcomes that you desire. Yeah, that's what I found a lot is that a lot of organizations do have kind of a patchwork of programs, but not really a comprehensive strategy. And and those that do, their strategy is focused on workshops and, and hiring. So that's right. Same thing that you're talking about. But how would how what how do you help leaders find their why? You know, so 
I was mentioning to you in our before we got onto this call that my book, Leading Inclusion, is a bit of a hard read for some, because what I believe is that you really cannot be effective at leading inclusion for an organization unless you sort of do a little bit of soul searching first and sort of really understand what it is that you believe. Because what really, I think, tends to be the thing that trips organizations up or leaders up is when they are saying that they believe something and asking others to execute it, but that their own actions, their own behaviors, their own relationships sort of make it clear that they're not really aligned with what it is that they say that they're doing. And so I really encourage leaders to think about what it is, what have their experiences taught them, what might they need to relearn or learn for the very first time, and to sort of have that mindset that you might have to make some very difficult, bold, you know, take some bold actions, make some difficult decisions, because often I think another hindrance is that, (laughs) I'll be honest, what tends to really hold back this work is that there usually are other executives that don't believe in it and don't, and either they slow walk it, they do nothing, they delegate without clarity on purpose. Uh, They are the barrier. And so you might have to, you know, make some difficult decisions about your own leadership team, because what we really need from leaders is really action that is consistent with what they say they're trying to accomplish And as employees watch them, they need to see that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. When you say that, uh, the alignment, I was thinking about Disney. I mean, we saw that there was a real lack of alignment earlier this year Mm -hmm. when the former CEO didn't speak out against the states don't say gay bill in Florida. Mm -hmm. And there was a Disney employee walkout all across the company. And Disney has great LGBTQ inclusive HR policies, but there is a lack of alignment with the rest, or at least with uh, the political agenda. Yeah. And, you know, in a case like that, that was a fascinating case. You know, um, I live in in the state of Florida, so I could not help but hear about it every minute of the day, which was okay with me because it deserved to get that much attention. And I think the issue there is that that is an organization where the product that they deliver out into the world is one that has consistently sent a fairly mixed message. You know, so you've gotten all this history that everyone can look at the films you've made and notice that it's, you know, these new, newer ideas, these ideas are newer to you as an organization. And we know that because we are only just starting to see them revealed in your product. And so I think that's where they were really struggling is who is our audience? And if it is our audience really aligned with this? Uh, and, and frankly, if we look at the data coming from, you know, peer research and other places and, and Gallup, what you will find is that a majority of Americans support LGBTQ plus ideals in one way or another. So they weren't really attuned with the public, in my opinion. I would agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to this week's good vibes, Gina. The first story comes from Colorado, and it's about how the Seamboat Ski Resort established an on-site daycare facility for employees. Now, it's not particularly unusual for large corporations to have an on-site daycare facility, but what is really unique here is the public-private partnership that empowered this to come about and also how it's really about helping their families. I mean, this is about employee retention. There's so many side effects here that are important. Mm-hmm. That is a fascinating story. And, you know, Bernadette, I had been thinking about things related to this even before that story came out, because in the last year, I have read several stories, especially coming out of the state of California, about how teachers cannot afford housing 
close to the schools in which they teach. And several of the school districts are literally looking for, some of the, some school districts are actually building their own housing, affordable housing, and also, for example, doing the kinds of partnerships that you were talking about in Steamboat. They're asking people in the community who have extra rooms to rent their rooms out to teachers just so they can have housing. And so what's really interesting to me about this is I admire what this organization is doing and I admire the private-public partnership. I think it's going to become more common. And I think what it really calls out is that when organizations create a new product or service as they're thinking about whatever that, or even an existing product or service, when they're thinking about that, they have to really think about the humans who are at the center of whatever it is that they are delivering and ask the question, well, how are those humans taken care of? I don't think those kinds of questions are the ones that tended to come at the front until we had a pandemic and people realized, wait a minute, people don't have food, people are unhealthy physically and mentally, people are worried about their children's education and their childcare, like all of these issues have come to the fore. So I think this is the silver lining of the pandemic at work again. Oh, I know. I've been enjoying all those silver linings, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been it's certainly given me things to write about over the past yeah. few years. Right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it is really unfortunate that this is the reality, and I hadn't heard about those stories in California. I mean, that's absolutely heartbreaking. I appreciate that there are creative solutions, and that there are starting to be more models and blueprints that organizations can actually learn from. Believe it or not, I had an email this morning from someone from a government agency who gets my newsletter and said, can you send me uh, the direct link to that article? I want to, we want to, we're trying to do something similar with our own organization. So Mm -hmm. I love that this is already starting to inspire the light bulbs going off. Absolutely. And and this whole idea of the partnership, meaning we're all in this together and it's not enough to say you have money to do a thing. You've got to think about all of the, the stakeholders and the players that are, will be necessary to do that thing and make sure that everybody's taken care of. Absolutely. Well, you can see the, uh, for folks who are watching, you can see the link in the chat to learn more about that story. Okay. So the next story comes from Brown University, which is one of the schools which has more recently banned caste discrimination. So earlier this year, the entire University of California system added caste to their non-discrimination policy. And then recently Brown University became the first Ivy League to do the same. So the caste system, for those who aren't familiar, is a hierarchical system that originated in India, but it carries over and uh, to this day actually affects societal rank and opportunity. It's a form of oppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I was thinking when I saw this story, I was thinking about a couple of things. Well, first of all, that's great because it's pretty obvious that this is not just an issue that is limited by geography to the Indian subcontinent. It affects everyone as they travel around the world. But the other thing I was thinking about is that here in the United States, um, oh, I cannot think of her, of her, um, of the author's name at the moment, but she wrote the book Cast. And the, her whole point about this book was that the idea of caste is really not necessarily tied to race or ethnicity. It's that, as you said, hierarchical structure. And so in fact, even in the United States, we have a caste system, although we more traditionally think about it from the perspective of race and uh, ethnicity. But these are the dimensions that really determine where people, how, what access the people have to power and influence and opportunity and, 
I think there's going to be a public legal case that comes to the courts next year brought about by an employee within the Cisco organization because tech companies in Silicon Valley have been starting to think about this issue and there are organizations that have been established to help organizations specifically uh, think about this issue within their workforces. For example, where in this case, an employee was saying they didn't get a promotion because of their caste. So when we think about all the ways that humans vary and the experiences that vary as a result of how we look. (laughs) This is one that really deserves attention. It certainly deserves attention in the educational arena, and it's going to be getting more attention, I believe, in the business arena. Absolutely. I think you're right. I think that the fact that there's a pending court case or legal challenge around this, I think, is certainly going to mean that organizations are going to have to start paying much more attention. So, As you can imagine, I'll be keeping tabs of that and writing about it in five things. (laughs) Okay, next story is about how Ava DuVernay, she became the first black woman on a Ben and Jerry's pint with a new caramel flavor called Lights Caramel Action. I absolutely adore and respect Ava DuVernay, who's a filmmaker who produced 13th, which I highly recommend everyone to check out. It's great news. Yeah, it is great news. Well, it is great news, although I have to say, you know, I don't necessarily keep track of all the new places where a Black person shows up for the first time. Uh, The reality is that this is, it is true that there will be these things that will happen for the first time. There'll be many, 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 many firsts, and they're all wonderful and should be celebrated, especially if they kind of become so commonplace that you don't notice them anymore. Yeah, and that will eventually happen. On the other hand, let me say, Ava DuVernay, yay, because I love her movies. (laughs) I love (laughs) anything she's associated with. I love everything she... I love that she is an individual who is able to balance, you know, the capitalist um, aspect of being a filmmaker. You've got to make the film has to make money in order for you to make the next film, but always consistently with a very deep social justice message. And then, you know, her array organization has been established separate, you know, from her production company to make sure that there's talent available across the spectrum in all the different roles, people who look in all the ways that humans look. Um, and so she puts her money where her mouth is. And in this case, she also happens to put her mouth where her, you know, the flavors of this ice cream is caramel. And I'm like, yes, I can see why, why it would be caramel. I am looking forward to buying some of that to support the company, but I, I like ice cream. Uh, and certainly really thrilled to be able to maybe see her her face on the box. Absolutely. You know, I agree. And and let me tell you, Gina, sometimes finding these stories means that it's like the first yes. blank, right? And I'm yes. like, uh, well, the story really is about finally, but. Oh, <laughs> <it's> I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I'm all for the celebration. Don't don't mishear me at all. I, sure. You know. <laughs> all right. So the next story comes from the UK. A hundred companies in the UK have already officially committed to a four day work week. So there's a pilot going on, and the pilot's going really well. But beyond that, there's already this commitment going forward. This small commitment only affects 2,600 employees, but it really is something that is starting to pick up steam. And, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing that employees are accomplishing all of their tasks within 32 hours. Uh, They're not changing the the length of the work week in terms of the amount of time that there's, sorry, they're reducing the amount of time that they're spending without any financial implications. And it's pretty amazing how it's creating a win-win productivity and well-being. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like 95% of the companies said that their productivity had either remained the same or had gone up. That's the so that's yay. I'm yeah. happy about that. But of course, on the other side of that, the piece that I like to talk about more is that employees said that they were more rested, that they were eating more healthily and exercising more consistently. And so, as you say, a win-win, uh, not just for the employers, but for the employees. And so you know, I don't know if you feel this way, Bernadette, but it's like just the other day, just the other day where people thought just asking for Fridays off, can I have a four day work week felt like, what? like, oh my gosh, I have to go and get a dispensation from the Pope or something to even ask this question, asking for flexibility about which days I work or whether I work sometimes work from home or, you know, all of those things seemed like such a big deal. And so another pandemic silver lining, as we all know, is that now organizations are beginning to realize that the more that they can do to help employees be, be take care of themselves uh, and have the flexibility that they need to do other things, the more likely they are to not just perform well, but stay in the job. And so it's nice to see now some research evidence then that makes it, you know, for those holdouts who say, you know, I'm, I don't believe in this or people can't be productive. It's nice to see even more research uh, supporting the idea that a four-day work week can benefit both employers and employees. I completely agree. I just, I think we're going to start seeing more and more of it, hopefully here in the U.S. We're not seeing a lot of it here yet, but hopefully we're the next frontier. Okay. The last story today is about Doctors Without Borders, which recently admitted that their marketing and fundraising materials have historically shown white doctors assisting black people, perpetuating the myth of white saviorism. And this is actually, it, it's not true that it's primarily white doctors. I mean, 80% of the colleagues in Doctors Without Borders are hired from the countries in which they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because it's, it's an, unfortunately another one of those sort of common things. It's only since George Floyd was killed that you look at the media, regardless of the industry, and see a broader representation of people, of humans that are reflected in advertising, regardless of whether this was for-profit or not-for-profit or healthcare or not healthcare, it's only then in the last couple of years that we're starting to see a variety of people, people with disabilities and so on. So it isn't surprising, but the healthcare industry, I think is, I think that it is, the fact that it is in healthcare is particularly noteworthy because it is in healthcare, especially international global healthcare, where there is this notion of what the physician looks like that remains Mm. very, very strong. And I'm always very interested in global healthcare because you know, I've done some research on this, or at least I have studied this, where, for example, I know that physicians who are, let's say, white physicians who are working with patients from other races, there are a lot of stereotypical ideas that they have about those individuals only because they haven't really interacted with them. But yet there's this notion that says this is what a doctor looks like. So anything that they can do to get rid of that overarching idea, especially when they're providing health care to Africa and, and other countries where people are a variety of races, 
And the doctors are, in fact, looking like <laughs> that's that was the irony. The physicians actually look like the patients, but it is within sort of the the um, the leadership hierarchy of the organization or that perception within the leadership hierarchy that if you're going to present the physician, you ought to present a physician who looks like a white male. That lets you know that there's a lot of opportunity uh, in the way that healthcare is led for people to have a broader perspective on on what excellence looks like. Yeah, I agree. I I completely agree. I think that's really important to sort of demystify uh, demystify that. And yeah, like you said, have a broader perspective on what excellence looks like. I also think that this story is notable because we don't see, you know, we we do see more inclusive marketing, you know, more diversity in marketing, but we don't see a lot of companies taking accountability for what they did wrong before that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really what's notable here is uh, that taking responsibility for that and admitting that there was a manipulation at play, mm-hmm. you know, for donor mm-hmm. dollars. I think that's really incredible. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and um, and hopefully that accountability and taking that accountability also means you can have a more honest conversation that other organizations would learn from because the truth is, that when organizations are performative and when they don't take responsibility, everybody knows that they're not being honest. Though They might think they're fooling someone, but the only person they're fooling is usually uh, themselves. And so, it, you know, it's really um, an opportunity for us to all just admit the fact, like we know we never used to see people of color around the dining table and the Thanksgiving ad. Let's, okay, now that we have them, we're happy that this has changed. Or we didn't see, you know, people with disabilities or people who self-identified as LGBTQ+, but maybe now we're seeing more. Let's just, we're happy, happy, happy about all of that. Let's not pretend like it has always been that way. And let's also acknowledge that there's an opportunity for it to even get better and even more inclusive. Absolutely. And you know what? I We have a comment here, Gina, just to wrap up. Stacy Walton, MD, MPH. Seeing this recognition is particularly important to me because only now do I see myself volunteering for this organization. How about that? That is amazing. Actually, that is probably the most important good piece of news that you know we could highlight from that story because you have now here a physician who's saying, I can be a part. I can help. I want to help, but I, I was afraid to help before. I didn't think it was representative of me, so now I can be included. That's fantastic. It really is. It really is. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing, Stacy, and thank you so much for being my guest today, Gina. How can folks find you if they want to learn more about your work? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Gina with an E, G-E-N-A, and my last name is Cox. But my website has the very same name, GinaCox.com, and you can find me there. And if you're interested in buying Leading Inclusion, the book, it's available at all good booksellers. Uh, and I'd love to chat with you about it after you read the, read the book. If you have questions, just reach out. Uh, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you so much for joining me, Gina. And thank you, everyone, for listening and watching today. And I will see you next week with more good vibes in DEI. Thank you for listening to five things in 15 minutes. I hope you found yourself inspired by at least one of this week's stories. If you did, would you mind sharing it with a colleague and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform? And if you don't already get my five things newsletter, join at five things, I'm Bernadette Smith. And I'll see you next week right here for five things in 15 minutes, bringing good vibes to DEI.